of his father with the holy angels. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, before I get into the sermon this morning, a word of uh, personal word here. Uh, two weeks ago, I stood in front of you and told you about the Lilly Grant, the uh, funding proposal to fund the whole sabbatical next summer. And the update is we did not get it. So it is disappointing to tell you that, but it's also a commitment on our part to celebrate and also mourn together that we didn't get it. The, the good news really is that my wife, a couple days afterwards, uh, she said it well. She said, you know what, now we get to do God's plan A. I thought, wow, that's a very wise, introspective understanding of, of how God works. And so you should know this, that there is a team, four people, steering committee, that's helping me to kind of reposition and revision what we want for next summer. But one of the things that I think is coming out of this for me personally and I want to share with you is the need to have greater congregational involvement in what we do. Most of you don't even know that we took a sabbatical seven years ago in 2015 and uh, most of you, if you were there, would say, I'm not even sure what he did. I'm not even sure what I did either, actually. Because uh, I'm not even sure if I really understood what a sabbatical was. But we're approaching this completely differently. So here's what I want to say before I get into the sermon this morning. I want to invite you as a congregation to pray. And to ask God, God, what is it that you want for our pastor and his family? What is it that you want for them in place of rest? For rest, beginning in the summer of 22. So... I just want to encourage you to do that. And Vision Dinner, it looks like we're going to be able to have that next month. We're now beginning to see the rates come down here. More on that this coming week regarding COVID rates and the change in policies and so forth. But it looks like in October we're going to have our annual Vision Dinner. And at that time, I want to share more with you then about the vision of the sabbatical. And so God willing, we'll be able to do that in just a few weeks. Now, to God's Word. We're beginning a new series today, and it's called DNA. What is DNA? Um, there's Vince Lombardi. Some of you will know that name. Shay, give me that football. Some of you will know who Vince Lombardi was. He was the coach of the Green Bay Packers. And in 1961, he stood in front of his, his guys there. They had just come this close to winning it all the year before. And so they were hungry. They were thirsty to, to make it happen in 1961. And very famous, the most iconic, famous words in all of professional sports probably where when he stood on that first day of practice and he said, gentlemen, this is a football. He says, in other words, we've got to get back to basics here before we do anything else. We, we have to remember what are the fundamentals of why we do what we do as a team. And here we are, uh, 18 months after COVID began. Here we are after all the rancor politically and racially and the divisions that we as Americans have experienced. Even yesterday, just reflecting on the fact that that with 9-11, we actually had a sense of unity for a short period of time, and, and that has since, of course, dissipated. We've been through a lot as a community, both nationally as well as locally. And so what hit me, what I believe the Holy Spirit brought to my attention during our, my study leave this summer was a need to get back to our fundamentals. A need to get back to say, what is it that makes us a church community? What is it that makes us city church? Well, what makes us part of a global community of faith? And so this morning, I want to begin with the begin. I want to begin with the, the fundamentals of the fundamentals, which is the gospel itself, the gospel of Jesus Christ. I know that for most of you, you hear the word gospel, and certain things come to mind, and probably uh, a lot of good things come to mind here, but I don't want to, to presume that, that we all know exactly what that word means. The gospel, that word, actually predates Christianity. Did you know that? 
Mark chapter 1, verse 1, it says, the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now, in the Roman times, uh, the emperor, when a new emperor would be born, uh, sorry, the child of an emperor would be born, there would be a courier who would go out to the ends of the kingdom and they would present a gospel. In other words, it was a proclamation. And in the pagan community, they understood what that meant. But what Mark does, what all the gospel writers do, is he says, no, there's a greater king that's come, a greater emperor, the emperor of all emperors, the king of all kings. And so therefore, the gospel of Jesus Christ. This morning, I want to go back to a phrase that we will often use around here at City Church. If you're brand new to City Church, you will not have heard this from us, of course, before, but you'll hear it if you stick around with us. And that's this. The gospel isn't just what saves us. The gospel is actually how we live our lives. The gospel isn't something that simply, at one point in the past, is what, what brought us to faith. The gospel knows actually how we live our lives. And what I want to do this morning is I want to unpack that statement for us. As we talk about what does it mean to be the church, I want to unpack the word gospel for you. And what Mark does here, what he does about Jesus here, is that that's what Jesus does. He begins with telling us what does it mean that he rescued us. And then secondly, what does it mean that as rescued people, we follow him further up, further in. So let's jump in with the first thing here, and that is his rescue, how the gospel saves us. Look at verse 31 with me again. And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. Context is important, and whenever you, you hear a sermon, you should also wonder, well, what happened right before that? Because these things aren't just happenstance. There's a storyline that's being told here. And right prior to this passage, Jesus looks at his disciples and he says, who do you say that I am? Very famously. And very famously, remember, Peter responds. Remember what he says? He says, you're the Christ. You're the Messiah. That's what that means. That's important because for two years, Jesus has been walking and training the twelve. And for two years, they have looked at him as a rabbi only. Come follow me, chapter 1. And they do. But they think they're just following a rabbi. In fact, if you look at the language that the disciples use when they're talking with Jesus in that first two years, it's rabbi, rabbi, rabbi. And the other people outside the twelve almost always call him rabbi. But here, when Peter confesses Jesus as Lord, as Messiah, he's saying, you're the king. And so the light bulbs have gone off for the disciples. They're they're like, I get it now. Yes. Now, what does Jesus do? Verse 31, first word, and. And he began to teach them. In other words, that's great, Peter. You've been upended. Guess what? I'm about to upend you again. I'm about about to tell you actually what it means that I'm a Messiah. And that's the content of verse 31. But before we get to that, I want you to know that. I want you to see that. I want you to sense that. That when you come to faith, when you come to know Jesus, when you're, when you're traveling with him, he's come to upend you. That his goal, as it were, is to, is to completely remake you, to overturn you, as it were. And so I'm going to talk about that here in just a second, but I want you to see that, 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 that Jesus is setting Peter up here. Jesus is setting the disciples up saying, that we, we're just getting going here. We're just getting started. And isn't that the Christian life? Just when you think, man, I'm making progress, it's like, yeah, I want to show you more (laughs) of what it means to follow me. It's going to be painful at times. So look now at the content, verse 31. This is what was so painful for Peter and his comrades. 
says this again. He says, you know, he began to teach them many things, but he must suffer and be rejected by the elders. And the key word there is must. It's a couple times, really. It's must. In other words, this isn't just something that I want to do for you, Peter. This is something that has to happen. What is the, what is the has to happen here? It's two things. Number one, it's going back to the Old Testament, what's called atonement. And the idea there is that, that when they would come to the temple in Jerusalem, they would come and make sacrifices. There was a, a festival or a feast called the Feast of Atonement, and that was a looking back. It was a looking back to that God and his people, and, and when they would sin and they would fall away, there would be sacrifices made, animal sacrifices made in the temple. And what Jesus is saying is, I am the final sacrifice for sin. I, I'm that, that once and for all sacrifice that's going to going to happen here, but but I want you to see Peter and company. I want you to see that it's going to be costly because it's it's me that's the sacrifice, you see. And what's interesting is he, he uses that phrase, son of man. And actually that phrase, son of man, comes from Daniel chapter 7. In Daniel chapter 7, it's used in a, in a, in a slightly different way because it's, it's, a, it's a phrase that, that it's sort of like, a, like all the spotlights of Vegas, you know, on the heavens, waiting for something to happen. That's what the Son of Man will descend in glory, it says in Daniel chapter, and in power, it says there. And what is, what is Jesus doing with that phrase? Jesus is saying, let me tell you what the way up is, where, where the spotlights are. It's on the way down. It's in, in my humiliation at the cross. And so what, what Jesus is saying is that, that the glory of God will be made manifest in the suffering at the cross. You see. And it's this, this powerful picture here of that, that ransom must take place. Listen to what Psalm chapter 49, verses 7 through 9 says about this. It says, Truly no man can ransom another or give to God the price of his life. For the ransom of their life is costly and can never suffice that he should live on forever and never see the pit. In other words, all of us in here, when we've wronged someone, we... If you, if you have a conscience, if you're feeling a sense of guilt, and you've harmed maybe it's your spouse or a friend, and you have the sense of, hey, is there a way for me to make this up? Have you ever heard anyone say that to you before? Ever, and maybe it's not conscious or maybe it's that sense like, how can I make it up to my boyfriend or girlfriend? How can I make it up to my, my coworker here? And you get that sense, and, and we know what forgiveness is. That, and I've preached on it here before, that forgiveness is saying, I'm not going to make you pay the cost because you can't pay the cost. That's the reality. The reality is, the way that you've harmed me goes well beyond whether or not you can make it up. It can't be done. That's what the psalmist is saying. Because there's a psychic level, a soul level of penetration of violation that nothing in this world can ever make up for that. And that's what Jesus is saying. Jesus is saying, I I have to suffer. I, I, I have to go to the cross. There has to be a payment, an atonement for sin. But there's a second element that I want you to see here beyond just the, what we might call the legal or the judicial thing, what Jesus is doing here, and it's love. You know, I look around this room, and, and I see a number of you who are parents. And, and I see your children here with you. And I know this about you because I've been here long enough been, since we started uh, 13 years ago. And, and I know this is also true for me. It's also true for my wife, Kirsten, that if there was a choice between myself or my child, who shall live? I know who I choose, and it's not me. And, and I can only tell you that I would never think that way until I was a parent. And I've said this before, too, that, that there's something about becoming a parent 
that allows you to understand in a different way the gospel. There's a sense of like, like my child is driving me up the wall right now. That may be true. My child is irritating like what they're doing, that behavior, that decision that they're making in their life is adult, but I don't know how not to love them, right? And that's exactly what's happening here. You see, the Trinity, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, God didn't need us in order to be fulfilled, to be satisfied. Father, Son, Spirit, we're perfect in relationship. We're perfect in satisfaction of love. But just like two parents coming together, or two individuals come together as husband and wife, and what do they naturally want to do? They want to bring progeny into the world. They naturally want to bring an outflow, an overflow of their love into the world. And when we see that, we understand that when a parent says, man, if it's push came to shove, I remember hearing a story not that long ago of a woman who had cancer and, and, the, and the level of chemo that she needed um, uh, was going to be significant, but she was pregnant. And they said, you're either going to lose your child or you're going to lose your life. And, and, and if you're a mother, this won't surprise you in her decision. She chose her child. And she brought that child into the world, and shortly after that child was brought into the world, she died because the chemo couldn't come fast enough. I mean, that, that's where the rubber meets the road. And, and, and I want you to see that, that, that. That's the heart of the gospel, is that Jesus isn't someone who simply said, well, something has got to be done, Father, to bring them back to you. He says, out of love, I want to bring them back to you. So I want you to, to ask this question. Do you see the gospel this morning? Do you see what it is that Jesus wanted to do for you? And let's not make it generic, make it personal, what he wanted to do for you. That, that, that if no one else, he did it for you. He, we, he couldn't imagine a world without you. I love what Edward Schweitzer, a writer, put it. He says, God is therein precisely God, and that he can do what humanity cannot do. God can allow himself to be rejected, to, made, made, to be made low and small, without thereby being driven into an inferiority complex. Whoever understands the suffering of the Son of Man understands God. It is there, and not in heavenly splendor, that one sees the heart of Look to the cross. What do you see? The Savior hanging on a tree. His love made manifest. This is why, if you're brand new to City Church, I want you to hear this. This is why we are ruthless here at this church that every Sunday morning you would hear the gospel. Nothing else matters. I have no desire. I could be making probably a lot more money doing something else, right? I could do something else if it was about something else. But, but this is about making Jesus known to the world. And what a privilege and what an opportunity I have to do that. What a privilege and opportunity you have as a follower of Jesus Christ to do that, is to make him known to the world. Nothing else matters. City Church will always be ruthless to ensure that every Sunday when you leave here, you will know who Jesus is, that you will know what he's done for you, the heart of the gospel. That's it. But I want you to see that, that that may be true, but how we respond to that truth is up for grabs. Look at verses 32 to 33. And he said this plainly. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But turning and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, 
Get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of men. Now, the word here for rebuke is strong. It's what's used of an exorcism, right? And so so I want you to think about this for a second. You talk about irony. Peter has just confessed who Jesus is. And no sooner does he make that confession that he now does a 180. Right? And he rebukes the Messiah. <laughs> this is so ironic. He turns around and he basically, in the same strength of an exorcism, says, no, 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 this is not going to happen. And I command it. That's what he does with Jesus here. But why? Why would Peter, right after making this proclamation Jesus, I know now who you are. You are more than a teacher. You're more than a rabbi. You are the Messiah that we've long awaited for. So why in the world would he respond the way that he does? And the answer is this. No disciple, no Jewish man or woman or child would ever imagine a Messiah who would go to a cross. That's why. They were looking for a Messiah that was one of two things, maybe a combination. Number one, it was some sort of military victor, some sort of general. And there were would-be messiahs that had predated the coming of Jesus who tried to overthrow the Romans with violence. There were even disciples called the Zealots. And they were sort of the, you know, the sons of thunder, James and John. Right? They were sort of given over to the more militant, uh, extreme version of this, as it were. And so they're looking for a way to get the jackboot of the Roman army off their necks, you see. And so that's part of what's going on here. But, but let, let's, give, let's give them a, the benefit of the doubt here. Maybe that's not what they're looking for. Maybe they weren't looking for the violent extremist response. But maybe instead they were looking for the religious purists to come. Because there's so much corruption at the time in the Jewish councils, among the scribes, the Pharisees, and the religious leaders. The temple was, was corrupted. They knew that. We know the stories of what Jesus would do when he would come into the temple and he would see that corruption. And so, so it, they naturally were looking for a Messiah who would, become, who would come and, and cleanse the temple, who would be a religious purist. But of course, Jesus didn't come simply to do window dressing on the temple. He came to destroy the temple. Here's the point. When Jesus comes into our lives, he comes to overthrow our understandings of who he is. All of us in here, myself included as your pastor, have notions and beliefs and narratives of who God is that aren't biblical, that come from somewhere else, that come from our culture and our society, but they don't come from the Scriptures themselves. Jesus has to overthrow that, friends. He has to come there, and I'm telling you, it's painful at times, right? It can make us uncomfortable. When I was a kid and adolescent, uh, I grew a lot in one particular year. I, I know some Drexlers over here know exactly what I'm talking about. Like seven inches in one year. I, I see a hand right there. And, uh, and so I know what you feel, brother. Like when I, when I was an adolescent, I grew all this, you know, I'm 6'4 now, or I used to be 6'4, I'm shrinking now. But, uh, but, you know, I remember what it was like, and they're called Charlie Horses. You know, you ever heard that phrase, Charlie Horse? Now, I have no idea who came up with that phrase. But I tell you, I know exactly how they feel. And what was happening is that my, my bones, my femurs in particular, I think, and my legs, they were stretching. And it was so painful. I would wake up in the middle of the night in pain and cry out, and there was no amount of Aleve or Tylenol that could relieve that pain because it was just happening. And, and I think that's what the, the Christian life is actually supposed to be like. It's like if you really want to grow in your faith, you're going to have to be made uncomfortable. 
you're going to have to, you're going to, have to be, be challenged in ways that you're not going to like. No one naturally likes to be challenged. No one naturally enjoys conflict. You shouldn't, by the way. But no one, no one naturally enjoys the process of being stretched. That's what's happening when you're growing and out. Your body's being stretched, and it's painful. There's no way around it. And so sometimes it happens right here. You know, 13 plus years of ministry, there have been hard conversations I've had, I've had to have with people. Right? And, 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 and God has given me loving authority. He's given our elders loving authority to have those conversations. And they're painful. And I, I, mean, I, can, I can remember one right now of a, of a couple uh, infidelity and, and, um, and how uncomfortable and painful it was to confront that husband and years later, how grateful he was. And, and what God did to redeem their marriage. And now they're thriving. Absolutely thriving. But it, it took a very painful confrontation, you see. And thanks be to God, it's not often that extreme. But, but that's what I'm saying to you. That if you want to grow in your faith, who here doesn't? Right? But if you want to grow in your faith, you need to assume you're going to be made uncomfortable. That your notions of the Messiah, your notions of the Savior, your notions of Father, Son, Holy Spirit will probably need to be challenged at some point. And your practice of that faith especially, that's the second part here in a second, you, that those practices are going to have to be challenged if you want to grow in your faith. We don't grow in our faith as individuals left to our own devices. We grow in our faith when we're in the practice of the faith, in the community of faith, teaching to faith, listening, observing, surrendering to the faith, you see. That's it. And so, I think, as I understand, our calling in City Church is, is to make disciples in that sense. But the last thing I want to point out here, I wonder if this is what this was like for you when you heard, get behind me, Satan. Why would he say that to Peter? Was he saying, oh, you know what, Peter, uh, you're demonically possessed right now. Uh, I need to do an exorcism. I'm going to rebuke you, brother. No, that is not the, that's not the meaning of satanic. When we think of satanic, we think of, you know, Halloween, or, or we think of the movie The Exorcist, or, or we think of some sort of supernatural uprising or something like that. And I'm not saying it's less than that. But what I am saying is that any sort of worldview, any sort of belief system that would take us away from the idea that Jesus is front and center, he's the center of our everything, any belief system, religious or irreligious, is by design and by definition, therefore, satanic. Anything that would cause us to move away from the centrality of Jesus in our souls and lives is satanic. And, and, and you know, look, why does he say, get behind me, Satan? Because remember, what happens in Mark chapter 1? What happened in Matthew 4? The temptation in the desert. Three times, what does Satan say to Jesus? Hey, doesn't have to be this way. There's another way for you to, to live large and be in charge. And Jesus says, depart from me. What is Peter doing? Peter says, I've got a different agenda for you as the Messiah. I want you to make sure that I'm comfortable. You're making me uncomfortable with this idea that, that you're going to go to the cross and then you're going to invite us to do that? <laughs> no, no. No, no. Look, Christ did not come to make you comfortable. He didn't come to make me comfortable either. And, and so, and so you, we need to redefine that. See, 
when we say that Jesus saves, what we're saying is he came to rescue us from our idols. What is an idol? An idol is an inordinate love. It is placing a, a, a love into something that wasn't intended to deliver the goods. Let me give you an example. You know, here we are um, coming towards the end of 2021, and I thought back to what happened uh, when, when certain people stormed the Capitol in January. And there's an article, I think it was David Brooks in the New York Times, but there have been a number of articles over the last several years prior to the, this event that said the same thing over and over again. That with the decline of religion has come the rise of the ideology of politics. And we've always said politics. Some of you know I was a political science major. I love politics. But hear me on that. 20 plus years later, I still, 30 years now from college, I, I still love you know, to follow the political process and I'm so grateful for the country that we live in. But one of the things I've seen in the last several years in particular, is the rise of ideology. And it's not a certain side of the the political spectrum. It's left and right as well. But what I saw there, the storming of the Capitol, was something more than what you saw on the TV screens. I saw the fear of an ideology that would come crashing down if we did not take it by force. There was something in our civil religion, as it were, that felt like it was at stake and why would people go to the point of violence, to the point of even losing their lives potentially, to do that? And I, I want to suggest to you humbly that what I see is the rise of the ideology that precedes theology, as I said a few weeks ago. And so anything, any good thing, politics, sexuality, economics, love itself, any of these things, when we place a demand upon it to come through for us, to bring us identity, to, to bring us a sense of fulfillment and significance. Whenever we place it, we place an inordinate burden and load on it that it was not designed for. And Jesus said, I've come to rescue you from that. I've come to rescue that, that you might find your first love in me, that you might find your significance, your worth, your value, your identity, your ideology in me. Jesus saves by rescuing us from ourselves. It leads to the last thing, and this is where I'm going to close. A little bit less time on this than the first thing for for good reason, is the setup here, is the fundamentals. And that is, Jesus calls us to follow him as disciples. Look at verse 34 with me. And calling the crowd to him with, uh, with his disciples, he said to them, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Now, Jesus has rebuked Peter, and in doing so, he actually says he turns to the disciples and does it because he knows that Peter is simply the mouthpiece. They're all thinking this. And then he looks at the crowd. Now he's involving everyone around him. And he says, come, follow me. Take up your cross. Take up your cross and follow me. This is the heart of what we mean by discipleship here at City Church Eastside. What does that mean? Where does he want them to go? He says, pick up the cross. What was he referencing there? Remember, Jesus, as he goes to the cross, literally has to pick up the cross. In other words, discipleship is a call to go to your death. It's a fellowship in the sufferings of Jesus. It is a practice by which we die to ourselves and we say, I'm going to live for you and for you alone. And what that means is not just that he has to do a a small little operation of little tweaks here and there in us. He has to go straight to the core of who we are. Rick McKinley, a pastor and writer, uh, I love what he said here. He said, Jesus never remodels us. He doesn't improve us. Our very natures are the issue, not the cosmetic bits of looks and behaviors, ambitions. It goes right to the core of our nature where the dry rot has corrupted the very integrity of our lives. 
Jesus didn't come to remodel your life. He came to be your life. Most of us want only a simple remodel that will cover up the rotting boards. Jesus plans to crucify our corrupted humanity and replace it with his perfect humanity. You know, when I read that quote, I couldn't help but think about what happened in Florida this summer at the Surfside condo development. We all know the story. Nearly 100 people lost their lives. And suddenly in the middle of the night, that whole, and you saw that on the, on the, uh, on the video there, the whole, whole thing just came down suddenly. All those people lost their lives. And, and, you know, the preliminary investigation is still ongoing. But what it looks like is, is that the corrosive salt water, because they're right there on the beach and just that wind blowing the water, and then there was a lack of drainage. You know, from an engineering perspective, there's, there's a problem there with the drainage. And so when that corrosive salt water would blow in, when the rain would, would come and mix in with that, all that water mixed with the salt that was corroding would just would drain down to the pylon. And if you knew in advance that that was what was happening to your building, and you had millions of dollars to spend, where would you spend that money? Would you, would you spend it on tweaking and, and doing a, a paint job on the outside to make it look pretty? No, you wouldn't. Where would you spend the money? You go right to the core. You say, we've got to rebuild this thing. It's got to come down. We've got to rebuild this. Lives are at stake. Jesus says, lives are at stake. I have to tear it down. I have to go to the core. And the only way that it can happen is that you have to die to yourself. And you have to, to live for me. Eugene Peterson put it this way, uh, reflecting on Mark's gospel. He said, the gospel, Mark, is so graphic this way. The first half of the gospel is Jesus showing people how to live. He's healing everybody. Then right in the middle, he's this. He starts showing people how to die. Now that you've got a life, I'm going to show you how to give it up. That's the whole spiritual life. It's learning how to die. Now listen in light of that with what Jesus says in verses 35 through 37. The great paradox of our faith. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? Or what can a man give in return for his soul? I want to conclude by showing you two things about what that means in terms of being a disciple of Jesus. Number one, Jesus wants to bring you life by bringing you death first. The word here for life is psyche in the Greek. And we get the word psychology from that. And psychology is the study of identity. Kirsten and I were trained as counselors before uh, I became a pastor. And and the number of people in here, as I look around, have been trained in psychology. And, and the work of identity is helping someone to integrate. We use that word, it's a wholeness is another word that we use. It's the idea that we want to integrate the, the soul and the psyche, the life of the person, that they might walk as one, that they would run as one, that they would live as one. Integration work, you see. And what Jesus wants for us is say, and he, what he's saying is that if you really want to be integrated, if you really want to experience wholeness in your life, you have to get your priorities right. So in your economics, in your sexuality, in your love relationships, in your work, in your achievements, you must put things rightly, rightfully so. And so if we look to, for instance, to our career, because in traditional societies, most people look to their families to make a name for themselves. It is my family name. It's the size of my family. But in the Western individualistic West, where do we find our, our identities? Typically, it's in our work. 
or it's in some other type of achievement. It's in our independence. It's in our expressions of our individuality. And what Jesus says is, if you put the cart before the horse, you'll never arrive at the destination that you want to be at, integration, wholeness. He says, as Paul says in Galatians chapter 2, I've been crucified with Christ, and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. Integration, wholeness here. C.S. Lewis put it this way in, in one of his works regarding this idea that what is it that our purpose and mission is? He said, the church exists for nothing else but to draw men into Christ, to make them little Christ. If they are not doing that, all cathedrals, clergy, missions, sermons, even the Bible itself are simply a waste of time. The purpose of City Church is to see you integrated as a disciple, is to keep first things first in your life so that you might speak to the political world, to culture, to society, to each other, in a way that would bring forth life to the nations, to the world. That's the mark of what it means to be a disciple. Jesus changes us from the inside out so that we might go to the outside world to bring Jesus in. And leads to the last thing I'm going to say here very quickly. He gives you a new mission in your life. Here's the closing question I have for you. Do you know what your destiny is? Right now, this morning, do you know what your destiny is? Do you know what your mission in life is? I am convinced that most of us in here have only a small, small piece of it. That if, if, we, would, if we would just say, Jesus, command me, my time, my talents, and my treasure revealed to me, What is your mission for my life? We would have so much more shalom in our lives. We would have so much more integration and wholeness. Jesus has a mission for your life. And you may not know what that mission is today, but he has one for you. And the way that you discover what that mission is, and by the way, that's not just your Sundays, it's life between the Sundays. It's in your career, right? It's It's in your family life, in your relational life, in your friendships, whatever makes your life your life. He says, I have a mission for you. You have a destiny. And and learning to be a disciple of Jesus is learning what your mission is. It's learning what your purpose is. And I'm here to tell you that when you know what your mission is, it brings joy to your heart that no one can take away. It brings you a sense of vitality. It brings you a sense of significance and value that nothing else in this world could possibly ever give you. And so I ask you again, do you know what your mission is? God has a mission for your life here. And because he is the king, we don't negotiate. He is the king. And when you're in the presence of a king, the only thing you do is you hold out your hands and surrender and you say, Jesus, command my life. King, command my life. You have a king's perspective. You can see what the needs are in the kingdom. So I I offer to you my time, my talent, my treasure, saying, Lord, King, Jesus, leverage it in a way. Command me, Jesus. My promise to you is if if we as an individual and we as a church can live like that, you just wait to see the mighty wonders of God revealed through you individually and through us collectively as a people here on the east side of this wonderful city called Atlanta. So may that be, as we, as we walk through our fundamentals of the faith, as we walk through the fundamentals, the building blocks, the expression of life, DNA, may we come to know him in a richer, more fuller way, individually, and collectively as a church family, may it be. Let's pray.
Father, thank you so much for your word. Uh, here, here at this church, as you know, Lord Jesus, we believe that your word commands us, that, that the goal in our lives is to learn what it means to be obedient to you. Father, there's resistance within our hearts right now. There's been resistance within my heart this past week. There's resistance in the hearts of all the people that sit here today. There's resistance in your community because we live between the now and the not yet. We live as saints, but we are also sinners at the same time. So there's resistance there. Lord Jesus, command us. Lord, command us towards obedience. That we would that we would die to ourselves, that we would die to being captains of our own destiny. So Lord, command us to follow you further up and further in into the life that you have given to us. Lord Jesus, thank you for the gospel. Thank you for the proclamation of the good news that you came to live the life that we should have lived and you died the death that we deserved so that we might receive the risen life that you have designed for us, true life, psyche. And so, Lord, may it be that in our bones and in our flesh we practice the kingdom, that we live it inwardly so that we might take it outwardly to the nations, that we might bless the poor and the powerless, the privileged and the underprivileged, and all those in between, that they might see the love of Jesus Christ displayed. Thank you for the proclamation. Thank you for the gospel. We pray this in your name, Jesus. Amen. We're going to take some time now to respond to God's word through confession. And then we're going to move through confession to the table. And so let's take a moment now. I just want to give you some space to, to really ask yourself, where do you turn that's not him? Where, where have you turned this week instead of him, instead of dying to that? and turned, You've turned to something else. We've turned to it instead of him. And so what is that? Let's take, take a moment and ask the Spirit to